Make sure to give my dad a five-star review. Get, make sure to like and subscribe to his YouTube. And thank you for listening and enjoy the show. show. <laughs> One of my students once asked me about one of my views, one of my academic views, is this mainstream? I said, there's no mainstream. <laughs> there's like 25 <laughs> different streams. Choose your stream, right? Um, yes. Th- th- there's no mainstream. You know, think about just even the Republicans. Are all Republicans of one mind? No. Are all Democrats mm-hmm. of one mind? No. There are, you know, different kind of subgroups. I-, I see these silos and they're becoming very stiff and hardened. Welcome, Faithful Politics listeners and watchers. This is Josh Bertram, your faithful host. Our political host couldn't be with us today. Um, He was too busy campaigning. So um, we have with us today Nijay Gupta, Dr. Nijay Gupta. Dr. Gupta has been teaching for more than a decade and is a leading scholar in the field of New Testament studies. And he's also a prolific author of many books and articles, including um, the recent important study of Paul in the Language of Faith. And he also co-edited with Scott McKnight the volume of the State of the New Testament Studies and has a handful of books that are now that have already appeared. Um, and we're going to be talking about his newest book, um, The Language of Love, our words, 15 uh, New Testament um, words for and so we're excited about that. Um, and uh, thanks for being on the show, uh, Dr. Gupta. Good to be really with you again, Josh. It. I remember last time yes. we had we had a great time with Will, and, and we had a lot of great conversation about faith and politics. So I'm excited to dig in again today. So it's a new it's a new yeah. era, new year, new political issues. So let's let's talk. Everything is new, right? Um, and I'm sorry, I bit butchered the book. It's 15 New Testament words of life. I don't know why I, I, I sounded go. like 15 New Testament words of life. Yeah. Yep. And um, and you guys should buy it. Everyone who's listening to this <laughs> podcast or watching, right? So, uh, Nijay, in your book, 15 New Testament words of life. Is this written for a lay audience, an academic audience? What 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 brought this book about? Yeah, let me talk a little bit about the you know how this book came to be, and hopefully then the audience will become clearer. Um, you know, I teach Introduction to the New Testament seminary level. I've taught it at the undergraduate level. I've taught it in churches, and students are always interested in historical details, uh, what was going on in the Roman Empire, what was going on in early Judaism, but. Hmm. Um, Students are also really interested in what does the Bible have to say about real life? I hate when people assume the Bible is just this antiquated, obsolete, Mm -hmm. um, boring, dusty old book. Um, Mm -hmm. There's one way to look at the old or the Bible and say, okay, it's this book from 2000 years ago. doesn't have anything to say to us today. But I, I, in my book, I use example of Hamilton the Musical, which my family loves. And from one perspective, Hamilton is about the founding fathers, revolutionary war, political skirmishes. But why is it popular? It's not popular for those reasons. It's popular because it taps mm-hmm. into themes that are really urgent and experiential for us of 
conflict, friendship, forgiveness, uh, hmm. anger, pain, love. I mean, the, this is the stuff of life, right? And my mm-hmm. passion is to say, this is actually what the Bible's about. The Bible's not just events that took place thousands of years ago. It's not just, here's how to go to heaven. Here's you know your, your manual to go to heaven. It deals with things that happened long ago. It deals with the eschaton, but it, the Bible's actually about real life. And so the subtitle is a New Testament theology for real life. So, so I actually have three contexts in mind for this book. One is the classroom. I would love if, you know, Bible college, uh, Christian university professors used it, even seminaries as a companion to a more traditional introduction. Second context, Hmm. I've heard preachers say they might use it as a preaching series. And our church, for example, does something called the big read where they just encourage parishioners to read a book through the series. And so I would love if, if, if a church chose this book or the pastor used it as fodder or material to think through a preaching series on the, these big words in the new Testament, like righteousness, holiness, peace, religion, um, love, grace, hope. Mm. The third context, uh, Josh's personal reading. Um, I, I hate boring books. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I feel like there are a lot of great academic uh, scholars out there, but to find someone that can actually write in an interesting way is more challenging. Yes. And I'll tell you one of the best things I did was I took two journalism classes in college as part of a public relations mm. major. Having no idea I'd become a writer. I just took them because <laughs> they were part of my major. And they yes. transformed the way I write because journalists have to be interesting. <laughs> they just have to. They have to. Otherwise, people are going to click to the next page. Or they're going to close the newspaper. And so that's taught me a lot about how to write. I don't know how much you think about writers writing, Josh, but one thing that I use with students, a mantra is write for readers, not reviewers. Mm. Um, I think about Rotten Tomatoes. I use Rotten Tomatoes all the time because that with the website <laughs> because I'm always checking movies out, TV shows. And there's the audience score and there's the critic score. And I'm almost always siding with the audience. <laughs> I don't know if that means I have lowbrow tastes or what, but um, I tried to write for people who are desperately wanting to know if and how the Bible actually connects with the things I experience mm. from when I wake up to when I go to sleep. That's so good. So have, take take a couple words that you have from the book and and, yeah. and help us, you know, kind of whet our appetite um, sure. for, you know, what these words are, a few maybe important ones, and then how you actually go from text to life. Yeah, for sure. So let's just take the first one. So what I did was I took a big word like righteousness. And I could look at righteousness in the whole Bible. That would take a long time and it would feel very scattered. So I decided I would focus on a case study, which would be one book of the New Testament. So for example, righteousness in Matthew, gospel in Mark, forgiveness in Luke, and so forth. So let's just take righteousness. Mm. Um, You know, the New Testament is written in Koine Greek, which means the language of everyday life. And um, the funny thing is, we don't really use the English word righteousness in everyday life. Um, so that's a mistake because it's a kind of a translation hmm. mistake because the Greek word dikaiosune, which is the word we translate for right as righteousness was a common word that just meant good, honest, 
trustworthy. So, hmm. you know, I kind of start off that chapter by saying, imagine seeing an ad for a shift manager at McDonald's, you know, mm-hmm. must, must be, you know, uh, must have a bachelor's degree, um, you know, must have a driver's license or something able to use Excel must be righteous. We wouldn't say that. Right. But we would say <laughs> looking for someone honest. honest, trustworthy, right. It's nice totally. that Greek has a word for that. English, we don't really have a one word for that, but that's just what it means. So, so when it talks about Noah was a righteous man, it just means he was a trustworthy, good person. Like we would say, Josh, mm. is Josh, you know, you should hire Josh. He's a good person, trustworthy. Yes, yes, you should. <laughs> That's right, and pay him well. Um, pay so I well and d- benefits too. That's right. So I look at Matthew, and I I look at you know the different ways righteousness language is used. You know, bl- for example, the Beatitudes: "Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness." Righteousness. I mean, yes. Yeah. What do we want? These are not people that hunger and thirst for salvation. Not people that hunger and thirst for heaven. They hunger and thirst for hmm. a, a world that makes sense, a world where things are are right. Right, a hmm. world where um you don't go to bed stressed out and angry and tired um because hmm. things are spinning out of control um don't hmm. we all don't we all hunger and thirst for righteousness right yes. um when you put it like that, we do when you put it like that we do i'm I'm watching uh I just watched a terrible movie by the way uh moon <laughs> moonfall moonfall. Uh, yesterday, I moonfall. Actually, I actually didn't watch all of it, but it's one of these apocalypse movies of the moons falling and destroying the world. And what's true about there are very few things true about that movie. But what's true about that movie is when things start going bad, people turn on each other and they loot and they fight and they compete, um, and and they lose their sense of community and civic responsibility. Um, and it's in those moments that we hunger for righteousness, right? We say, yes. just like with, with the Old Testament psalmists or with the New Testament Beatitudes, who's doing right? Who actually cares? Who is supporting the community? Who is a model for others to follow? That That's that's just an example of where I, I look at scripture and then I look at today and I say, you know, uh, the Bible wants us to be right with each other. The Bible wants us to be right with God. The Bible wants us to pursue justice. Um, pursue integrity, pursue character. So that's, that's one example. I don't know if you want to talk through that or if you want me to jump, jump into another one. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's awesome. I I love it that, you know, the Bible, it's, it's practically, um, there's a practical application to it. And, um, and it's, uh, we miss that so often and I love your passion for it. You know, one of the things that comes on my mind all the time, because I'm always trying to help people figure out how do we, how do we take this Bible? Cause I got people talk to me all the time. Um, I'm confused by it. I'm confused by the Bible. Yeah, I'm confused yeah. by what it says. So for us, we could look at something and it's translated righteousness. And I guess that's part of what your book is about to help us understand, you know, that, that that's uh there's a there's another meaning to that that's uh it's a more common meaning than we would have had uh for that word right now um what else could you how could someone go into matthew and seeing that how could they what can they do to figure out like wow that really does um apply to my life 
here, this idea of uh, I'm blessed if I'm desiring righteousness. Um, what, what can we do to figure that out? Yeah. I mean, one thing, this is kind of a first step is to read different translations because when we're locked into one translation, we'll get used to that terminology. Um, I actually do professional translation work a lot and there's a saying in the linguistic world. It's actually an Italian saying traditore traditore, and it means translators (laughs) are liars. Um, (laughs) What does that mean? It means there's no such thing as a perfect translation Anytime you're, you know, think about the UN where they have the translator, you know, there, you know, you can make mistakes. You can, you know, the translator is uh, a mediator and it's not so much they're making mistakes, but they're making translation choices. Interpretations, Um, right? So for example, one thing I do with my students, uh, which I, I, I hope is really fun for them, is I look at how movie titles are translated in other languages. Hmm. So for example, in, uh, you know, for example, it's raining. Uh, 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 it's raining meatballs. Is that the name of a movie? Yeah, um, yeah. Cloudy with a chance Cl- of meatballs. cloudy with a chance of meatballs. Yeah, in in I think uh, in one of the Middle Eastern languages, it's translated as it's raining falafel, <laughs> and uh, they don't change the movie, so it just it looks like meatballs, but it also looks like falafel. So that's a question of like a translation decision. Do we leave it as meatballs or do we convert it into something that's going to make more sense to the audience? Um, translation Translators are constantly fighting that battle of how much to retain from the original and how much do we sacrifice in terms of understanding. Um, translators do that as well. So I encourage people, okay, you like the NIV, also read the Message Bible or the New Living Translation or the Common English Bible. Getting out of Christianese, breaking that down, thinking through other ways of translating it helps us to refresh some of that language. Um, you know, I'm going to throw some other weird things out there that may not work for some people, but I actually like reading the, the patristic writers. Someone like St. John Chrysostom, you can go online, find his homilies. So he wrote very academic sermons, very long academic sermons. But he gets right into economics. He gets into social economics. He gets into Christian character and formation, um, all kinds of stuff. Now, he's not perfect any more than anyone today is not perf- perfect. Um, sure. But but reading some of these patristic writers, they were really interested in how some of these themes and concepts relate to everyday life, sometimes more than we are because they were living in the midst of great upheaval. They were trying to justify the existence of Christianity. Um, so I would read some of those patristic writers. There's a great book series with university called um, Ancient Commentaries on Christian Scripture. Ancient Commentaries yes. on Christian Scripture. It's these hardcover series, and they basically just pull out these snippets from different patristic writers for each bi- book of the Bible. I actually like reading those. I find those really helpful to think through a different way of looking at some of these texts. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, Josh Bertram here, faithful host of the Faithful Politics Podcast. I want to let you know about a compelling new spinoff, the Faith Roundtable, where I'll be interviewing top faith leaders, theologians, and scholars to unpack the pressing issues that are shaping the church in America today. We'll dive into topics like faith and public life, social justice, and how we can engage our communities more effectively. 
Make sure you don't miss any of our enlightening conversations by subscribing to it on our YouTube channel. Join me at the Faith Roundtable, where deep discussion meets thoughtful insight. Because the idea is you want to see not only what we, right, what we see now, right? We read in English and we mm-hmm. can interpret, but this has had a 2000 year history of yeah. interpretation. Um, and so, but why, why should anyone care though about what someone from that long ago had to say about it? What, what do you think? Um, you know, th- there's. I mean, I think we should care what anybody outside of our culture has to say because we have cultural blind spots. So mm. it would be great if you could listen mm. to a preacher or teacher in India, to, even today, uh, or someone <clears throat> in um, New Zealand or someone in China or someone in Brazil. Like that That's great just to begin with. I try to read scholars from around the world as much as I can. But even when you go back in time, there's an old saying, the past is like a foreign country. They do things differently there. Um, and, and that's true. But, but why go back to those first four centuries of Christianity? Um, d- one of my friends, David De Silva, he used the imagery of a tree. Christianity is this tree that's growing. And we are at the top where new branches are growing, which is fine. All parts of the tree are great. But why not go sure. back to the roots? Right. Scripture is kind of the, the roots, but why not go to the lowest parts of the tree that have some of the foundation? I mean, we stand today on the shoulders of Augustine and yes. Ambrosiaster and, you know, all these ancient writers that preserve the faith. They actually helped to form what we call the rule of faith, which hmm. are kind of the essentials of Christian theology. They're not written in the Bible. So the early church had to decide what are the fundamentals of Christianity? Because so many heresies were popping up second century, third century, fourth century, and all these doors opened, which direction should we take Christianity? And we know that doors closed, Gnosticism closed, Marcionite isn't closed, right? We closed all these doors, or at least we tried to close them. <laughs> Um, which means we're trying to get rid of certain heresies like Jesus wasn't really God or uh, Jesus was adopted or um, there are three gods or, you know what I mean? So those early writers are actually formative, even though we don't often know their names or what they wrote, they're actually formative in, in what we, the rule of faith is often identified with the apostles creed and the apostles creed really is, you know, the kind of the fountainhead of Christian theology. That makes a lot of sense. Like thinking back, like when I first got to college, my wife and I were uh, joking about this the other day. When I first got to um, Bible college, when I was 18, um, I heard the word exegesis for the first time. <laughs> and I swear, I thought it was actual, the name of Jesus. Jesus. In it. My yeah, wife yeah, said, yeah, I was yeah. like, I, I, I was like, what are we not? We're trying to take Jesus out of it or what do we do? So um, it's just funny because like there's these words that you forget and, 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 and they're right. not common um, among like, you know, non-academic and uh, non-academic circles. And it's funny to think about the translation issues and the stuff of trying to interpret and trying to figure it out. Cause when I was young, I felt like faith was very simple. And I guess in a way it is, um, it is simple, but then there's such complexity 
and you know to the historical reality of this faith and you know one of the questions i get a lot nije is um from people that are skeptical and they think you know the bible you know sure there's some words in it that are great you got these 15 words but how could i even know that this bible is true how could i well let me put it this way um you know, you just said that they had to figure out what was going on, right? Mm-hmm. That theologically, like Trinity's not in the Bible, and yet we believe, you know, Christian theology is a trin- trinitarian. Um, you know that there's tripersonal God and, and 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 the dual nature of Christ and and the dual nature of Scripture being human written and also divine. Um, what what can we say in response to some people? who would be listening to this, like, okay, I want to read your book. It sounds good, but why should I even care about the new Testament in the sense yeah. that like, how do I even know wh- where's its authority? What, um, how, how can it even speak to my life here? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. I, I don't dive into that. It's kind of presupposed in the book, but I'm more than happy to talk about it. Um, you know, this is where people traditionally talk about apologetics. I'm I'm hesitant to uh, spend too much time on apologetics, which is kind of defending the faith in traditional kind of Western American ways, because um, it might seem like you don't need faith if you have all the answers. And the reality <laughs> is, let's just say in the first century. Okay, Josh, that's let's a take great, this. That's a great point. Let's take this to the first century. Let's say yes. the Apostle Paul is preaching in a new city, let's say Athens. Um, and, you know, he's out there saying, you know, hey, you know, the God of Israel, the one God is the only true God. We have our scriptures. We have this gospel of Jesus Christ. And someone walks up and asks the question that you that you said, you know, why should I trust you? Why should I believe you? Who in the heck are you? And Right. There's this one group of people, Israel, I'm Roman or I'm Greek. Why should I trust this group? That would have been a very common question that Paul had to field. Um, so that, that makes sense. I, it's, it's, it's worth asking that question. Um, you know, I, I, I would say what Paul would do is he would say, let's talk. Let me tell you about the amazing things this God has done for his people. And so just taking a page out of that, I I would say to people, um, we can be pretty confident that what the Old Testament talks about in terms of the history of Israel is accurate. Now, is it like word for word accurate? I can't verify that. Like we have Josephus, who's an ancient historian, to give some corroboration to it. We have archaeology. Generally speaking, we can say this, this people has been through some amazing things. And we can we can talk through that. I mean, people question the Holocaust. People question historical events today, All right? So it's it's normal to question. Okay, did this happen? Did that happen? And we can say, gosh, we have enough evidence to say yes, the Holocaust happened. We have enough evidence to say yes, Israel has been through a lot. And then we have the story of Jesus. And people will say, probably in in people probably said to Paul, how do I know all that that what you're saying about Jesus is true? And he yeah. would probably say, I have been with eyewitnesses and I have seen Jesus myself. So I think we today, I, I would say to somebody, if they say, how can I trust this New Testament? I would say, um, we have eyewitness testimony in the Bible. 
and I have experienced Jesus too. Um, And so I think half of what we say is, you know, there are valid reasons for trusting the Bible. But if we stop there, then I think that we're selling, selling short the gospel. Because the other half of what I would say is this book has changed my life. And I would like you to have an opportunity to experience that as well. Not as an altar call sell, but to say people are hurting today. People are hungry for depth. Yes. They're hungry for hope. They're hungry for truth. And I want to be honest that Christianity has let people down (laughs) um, in various ways, in various places, in various years. But as for me, God has brought more good (laughs) than the doubts and questions I have. Um, and, and, you know, I don't want to get into all the academic details, but, uh, there's a scholar named Walter Moberly who talks about plausibility structures, meaning the Bible sets itself up enough as truth for that people should at least give it a try. Um, I, I, that's kind of my approach to that question is I can't. I don't know anything 100%. When people say, oh, I know Jesus 100%. I trust God. I know I'll go to heaven. I don't know anything 100%, right? The person I'm closest to in my life is my wife, and I love her to death, and she loves me to death, and I'm not 100% sure about anything, right, related to our relationship. (laughs) It's it's faith, right? Everything is faith. Atheism is faith. Um, You know, being Republican or Democrat or or noncommittal is faith, right? Taking care of my children is faith. Being a good neighbor is faith. It's all yeah. faith. And so it's just a question of, you know, how do I want to live my life? What do I want to put myself to? So AJ Swoboda and I have a podcast called In Faith and Doubt. And Ooh. we talk a lot about deconstruction, faith and doubt issues. And um, what we want to normalize for Christianity is it's a moment by moment choice to stay engaged. And there are very few moments of, I feel perfectly confident about X, Y, and Z. Like the Christian life, just like marriage, just like friendship has ups and downs. And there's a moment by moment decision to stay connected, to stay engaged. I mean, that's what faith is. It's not this, I signed this piece of paper. I got baptized. Baptism's great. Church membership is great. But it's really just saying, um, I'm going to to continue to walk in this, even though it's confusing and hard. I, I think that honesty allows people to find Christianity more approachable versus selling this, your life will change tomorrow forever and you will be 100% sure. Um, that's That just doesn't work that for doesn't people. That doesn't really happen, does it? No. no, it totally doesn't happen. You know, you talk about plausibility structures, which I love that phrase, by the way, or that I guess it's not a phrase. What is it? Two words put together, yeah. whatever you call that. There's a linguistic term for that. I'm sure. Right. <laughs> two words together. <laughs> Morpheme. No, that's not it. That's yeah. it. So something. Um, something like that. Um, but so we uh, we're talking about the plausibility structures, which led kind of you mentioned deconstruction. I want to get back to the book. I got several questions about words from the book, but this is super big that you even mentioned that DJ, because I have several people that I know closely believers um, that are in this place of what they would call deconstruction. And I've been thinking about this. I'm like, what is this even like I've heard it around, 
you know, some people just say, oh, it's just an excuse to leave your faith or excuse to like, I guess I heard <laughs> it's not exactly about this, um, but um, uh, what's the John Christ said, he's talking about the Enneagram. He's like, stop using it as an excuse to just, you know, to excuse the bad parts of your personality. Mm-hmm. It just feels like, well, I'm an Enneagram. So, but it's like, it's kind of this idea that like, you know, um, that we can, we can basically uh, use this deconstruction to basically, you know, uh, you know, just excuse our doubts that we don't really want to explore or just say, yeah, I'm going to be skeptical about everything I grew up with, but then maybe there's another piece of that that isn't happening. What? And I've also heard that deconstruction, like from Jacques Derrida, right? Am I saying that right? Derrida? Derrida, yeah. (laughs) Not Doritos. Derrida. (laughs) (laughs) That he talks about deconstruction, but that's very separate or distant from this like deconstruction movement happening. In yeah, ex- the exvangelical movement. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, words have a tendency to take a life of their own, especially words that get used a lot. Whether it's deconstruction or doubt, um, you know, they can be overused and lose their meaning. But I, I find it helpful because it thinks of our faith as some kind of construct, right? A building, and you know. Actually, the Bible does that too. You know, built on the foundation of right. <laughs> yeah. it talks about pillars, um, growing into something, a spiritual house. So, so I don't mind the language of building, and I don't actually mind the language of deconstruction. But let's use some case studies. All right, just just mentally, right? So yes. let's use the example of someone who grew up in a church where it was reinforced that. Um, Christians should, uh, let me give an example from my experience. I grew up, you know, the Christian environment that I became uh, involved in in high school, uh, created a kind of construct of insiders and outsiders, right? So the people in the church are good and the people outside the church are dangerous and bad. So it's this kind of bubble mentality, you know, don't go to dances, don't use playing cards, like this very um, almost cult-like restrictive culture. I loved my church. I still love it. I love the people there. But uh, I had to take a hard look at what was built within the fabric of my faith. So for some people, deconstruction is saying, I'm going to have to go through this house and figure out what parts are actually causing unhealth, what parts are actually harming the house, whether it be racism, sexism, lack of care for the earth. I mean, there's some theologies that say, don't recycle, don't worry about climate change because the earth is just going to get destroyed, right? Healthy deconstruction, if you want to call it that, is going to go through it and say, maybe even at some foundational levels, I was taught some really unhealthy things about the Christian faith. So, for example, for me, I grew up in an environment uh, where women were not seen as equal and welcome participants in leadership in the church. And that was actually built into the foundation of my theology. So I had to go through and maybe instead of deconstruct, you say heavy renovation, (laughs) 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 heavy renovation. 
Um, I yes, think that's healthy. I like that. Where where it becomes unhealthy is there. You know, AJ and I talk a lot about this on our podcast. It's kind of exciting to take a sledgehammer to a wall. Like it's there's a kind of release there, and to say yeah. to hell with you, screw you, you misogynist, yes. racist, bigot. You know, it, it there there's a there's some you know endorphins that are released in taking a sledgehammer, right? Punching a punching yeah. bag. The problem totally. there is um, you could be cutting off the branch that you're standing on, right? So um, mm. deconstruction, if it's understood as as heavy, heavy renovation <laughs> to make the house healthier. I like that. I think that's great. I did it. AJ did it. It's it's I would even say theologically, spiritually necessary. But yes. demolition is a whole different thing. And the question is, um, do we really do? We, I think all this changes for me when you have kids, honestly. Uh, and not, not everybody's going to have kids. Not everybody wants kids. That's fine. But for me, like if I, if I turn cynical in my faith and I become kind of a smarty, smarty pants, know it all and say, I'm smarter than theologians. I'm smarter than the Bible. I'm smarter than my pastor. I'm smarter than Josh here on his smarmy podcast. You know, if I, if I get into that and I become cynical, right. My, my children aren't going to have anything to do with Christianity. Yeah. They'll go to church with me while they're young. Then they're going to grow up and think they're smarter than Christianity and they're smarter than the Bible. And they're, you know, more evolved than religion. And they, they don't want anything to do with Jesus. I've talked to dozens, maybe hundreds of people who are in that situation where they have, evolved in their faith to a place where their kids would never want anything to do with Jesus. So we talked yes. earlier about simplicity. I think there is a way of renovating our spirituality that can be healthy and actually get us back to a simpler form of faith. I might've used this analogy the last time we were talking. Um, so forgive me, but I learned something uh, from uh, some of my teachers called uh, the second naivete. So naivete means that you are kind of ignorant and you don't know things and you speak out of ignorance. And that's bad, right? You shouldn't speak out of ignorance. And you have this kind of simple-minded understanding. Uh, then you study something, right? And you learn about it. Let's say it's climate change or let's say it's religion and you become informed. But now you know too much and you have all these options. And should I choose this? Should I choose that? And some people stop there and they just live in, live in indecision and despair. Um, and that's bad too. So theologians, philosophers sometimes talk about second naivete that on the far side of complexity, I actually have to make a choice about how I'm going to live. Yeah. Right. Let, let's take an example of voting. You have two options for a candidate for governor. Naivete would mean, I don't know anything about either candidate, but I know this person is good looking and this one's not, or this person's tall and this person's short, or this person is my, uh, uh, my, my, uh, party and this person's not, uh, but I don't know anything about them. I don't know their track record, their voting track record, their history, how long they've been in politics or education, their community, their commitments. Uh, that's naivete. Complexity is Oregon sends you this massive documentation of everything you need to know about the candidates, who supports them, how they voted, their education, their statements, everything. You get this massive thing. 
And let's say you read all that. Let's say you read all that and you say, I don't know who to choose. Oh, well, I'm not going to vote. That's bad too, right? Because you have mm. resigned yourself in complexity. And unfortunately, many people live there. Second naivete is if the world's going to change, I'm going to have to make a choice and I'm going to have to live with that choice. And that's where you look for a new simplicity on the far side of complexity. I've studied the issues. I've looked at it. I may only be 51% in favor of this person, but I have to make a choice and move on with my life. And so you yeah. do, that's that far side. Um, and I think that's really important in healthy deconstruction and reconstruction that the goal will be to find my way back to a simple moment by moment, soft walk with Jesus. Um, I love that, if that doesn't happen, then you might as well give up on the faith. I mean, if, if it's just going to be this, I'm going to question everything the pastor says, I'm smarter than the pastor. I'm smarter than the elders. I'm smarter than the people next to me in the pews. Jesus doesn't want that. The person next to you doesn't yeah. want that. The preacher I know definitely doesn't want that. <laughs> it's okay to question things. I think questioning things is normal and good and okay. I would recommend yes. AJ's book, which is called After Doubt, How to Question Your Faith Without Losing It. Questioning is great. I like that. But questioning should have a goal of the far of simplicity on the far side. That's so good. I'm looking up that book that you just uh after doubt, you just, you just mentioned, yeah. yeah. After doubt, that looks awesome. I, you know, I, I love this conversation because, honestly, well, that that second first naivete and second naivete, that's gold. That's yeah. gold. So I hope that people listening take that down because that's such a good way to think about, like, almost like you're going from. It's like you come from, you go through a simple faith, then you go through. Um, right. This, this Doubt, time deconstruction, of complexity, complexity, yeah. everything it's, it's natural, right. It kind of like your own life, right. You, you get to teenage years and you're questioning everything and then you move on right to just to kind of like determine like, Hey, I don't know the answers, but I am going to live the life that, you know, I, I think is best. Yeah. And, and the faith, because right. I'm going to have faith in something. And the thing I think is best. I, I think so. so good. You know, even if you look at scripture, you know, you take something like the Proverbs. They're overly simplistic, right? Um, you know, I don't remember mm -hmm. the exact wording, but, you know, a, a gentle answer turns away anger. Um, so yeah. if you're like, if you're yelling at me and EJ, you did it. And I say, you know, I'm so sorry. Right. That's great wisdom. It's actually not always true. Sometimes people are still angry, uh, you know, but mm -hmm. it, it there, there's some simple, simple, you know, basic power to it. Uh, then you have really complex wisdom in things like Job or Ecclesiastes. Does that cancel right. out proverbial wisdom? No, you actually need both. You need proverbial mm. wisdom, you know, penny saved is a penny earned, right? Uh, and you need the more sophisticated uh, wisdom of, you know, uh, of some of these other writers, Jesus himself does speak in sometimes simple proverbs, sometimes simple parables, sometimes very complex parables. 
Um, and the nice thing is, you know, we, we can have both. It doesn't, you know, and and going back to my children, you know, I, I, I know too much about Christianity. My wife and I, we have, we both have master divinities. We both have been in the church a long time. My wife and I know all the ugly parts of the church. My wife's a pastor. Uh, I'm a seminary professor. I hear from, you know, I've spent time and worked with hundreds and hundreds of pastors. That would be reason enough to give up on the church, right? (laughs) <laughs> we try not to dump that on our kids, right? We want them to have as positive of an experience in the church as they can as young people, knowing the messiness is coming, the complexities yes. and doubt are coming, and we don't hide it. And we do talk about things openly with them. Um, you know, my wife has, you know, gone through different job transitions. You know, we've talked openly with our kids about all of that. I've gone through job transitions. Um, I've been hurt by the church. I've been hurt by the academy. We, we but um, we want to remember the best parts of our experience with God, the best parts of our uh, experiences in the church, and and offer that mm. to them. So um, the reason that we called our podcast "In Faith and Doubt" is meant to reflect our marriage vows for richer Mm. or poorer in sickness and health. And a Christian life is in faith and doubt. Yes. Um, Once we normalize that Christianity Mm. is actually more appealing. I feel like we want to pitch Christianity sometimes as this perfect thing. And that's just bound to let people down. Yes. Um, But when we actually, when we actually start with saying, You know, AJ talks about on the podcast, you know, that when he used to be a pastor, he would do kind of welcome to the church meetings for new people. And he would start off saying, let me tell you all the reasons you shouldn't go here. (laughs) And he starts talking about all the problems in the church. And he says he does that because the people that stay really, really, really recognize there's something greater than the the ugliness that they're bound to versus saying – you know, we're going to give you a mug. We're going to give you candy. You're going to get great worship and right. preaching. Yeah, of course. But I want to know, you know, what are the parts yes. of this community that are going to be troublesome? So, um, yes. Yeah. I don't know where, how we got to all that, but it's, it's, it's something oh, that I, I like it, to talk about. Well, it's so, I mean, it's so important, man, because this, it's like this ex-evangelical, you know, um, movement, which I totally, understand um a lot of the backlash against the way in which the basically the christianity we inherited right was a cultural just like every you know christianity was a cultural christianity in the sense that it has those cores but then there's all these cultural things that we that we bring some we like some we don't you know some are good and and helpful some are not um and being able to go back and see those is so, so important. You know, um, when you were thinking like, you know, this the, the deconstruction, like thinking about that theme and maybe connecting it to your book a bit, um, what was the most countercultural concept or word for today? Like that you would feel like, like that you came across in your study and research for this book what was the most countercultural concept and word that you saw that today people would be like, no, that's not, that's not me. 
Yeah. Um, good question. I mean, there's, there's a bunch I could choose from probably the, the one that comes most quickly to mind is, um, the word religion. That's, that's one of the books, uh, one of the, uh, chapters in this book. And I start off yes. with an interesting case study from about 10 years ago. There was a kind of social media influencer named Jefferson Bethke. You might've come across his stuff before, but he made this kind of rap. Yes. Uh, he made this rap uh, about uh, religion versus relationship. And it was this clever rhyming, yes. you know, the Bible is about relationship, not religion. And he's talking about, you know, religion is about hypocrisy, legalism, all this stuff. And he says relationship is about knowing Jesus, you know, whatever. And uh, I felt like it came across as very black and white and judgmental hmm. towards the term religion in a way hmm. that doesn't even resonate with the Bible. The Bible actually uses the word religion positively in the book of James, you know, religion is yeah. to care for the orphan and the widow and so forth. Hmm. Um, and time and time again, the Bible actually uses the word religion positively. It can point out hypocrisy and legalism like Jesus does in Matthew 23 and in other places, the Sermon on the Mount. But, there was an actual response from a Catholic priest to Bethke in, in hip hop rap form. That's basically saying, you know, religion is really <laughs> been good for the world because all the charities and, you know, things like that. So he's basically defending the Catholic yeah. church as an institution, which if you listen to it, it's actually pretty good. I quote some of it in the, in the book. Um, I think sometimes when people want to make this dichotomy between religion and relationship, it can turn Christianity into a very self-centered endeavor, mm. right? It's mm. about me and Jesus. It's about my quiet time. I get to decide when and if I go to church. Um, it's about my warm fuzzies. Uh, you know, and, and mm. you know, religion, if we, if we use the classic understanding of religion, it's about a community. It's about being a part of a great tradition. It's about hmm. being uh, catechized into a community that's been around for thousands of years. Um, that, that, I, I'm, that, there's an analogy I love, and I'm not going to get the details right, but there was a priest, I think it was a Catholic or Anglican priest, uh, who was very young. He was in his, you know... Uh, 20s and he gave a homily and someone at, at the church who's much older came up to him afterwards and said um, how can you preach to me you're you're only you know 25 and he says madam this collar is 2000 years old <laughs> you know <laughs> uh, and, and that just kind of give the mantle of the priest you know I, I don't quite buy yeah. into all of that but this notion that you know religion is about being part of something greater than just yourself um, being part of this beautiful, massive movement that involves millions of people over time. Um, religion is used in such a negative way today. Um, and, and, and I wanted to vivify and, and, and turn, take a positive spin on it and to say religion's about community. It's about politics, about justice. It's about hope. It's about the past. It's about the future. Uh, it's about making our lives better, but also helping our lives contribute to to something much greater than ourselves. 
I love that, man. That's so, so good. I mean, I've used that, that, that phrase of like relationship versus religion and you're really making me think. And of course, <laughs> it's a nice what phrase. We mean, what we mean by that, right? <laughs> what we mean by that is that, uh, yeah, those negative parts of religion. And I'm always right. thinking of like, like, like the rigid parts, the ones that are not right, but they're so rigid in tradition. Like when we think about when Jesus right. said, you're holding on to the tradition, not, yeah. not the words right uh, uh of the scriptures and uh, but i really love that new take because because it's true and i'm like what do i do with that place in james it says religion right there you know like well we translate it religion but you know what do i what do i do with that and i love i love your take on that um i i i really do um i think it's almost like relationship has to do with our inner self and religion like has to do with our our external self or body and and i and not without taking it too like um without going too far with it it's like we act out you know um we do acts of religion right yeah. we do acts of worship we do acts of service um internally that could be that could come from a good motivation or bad motivation um, or mixed, which is all, right, almost always. So just depending right on which percentage of bad and good. Um, but, uh, you know, that we can, um, that we have this, in, like this internal part of us, but we're, we have a body and that's something I've been coming, like we separate our body and soul way too much. Right. Right. In the Western world and have, uh, in reading, um, Scott McKnight's book on fasting and it's uh, it's yeah. really challenging me. It's awesome. I love it. I love the anthropology in it. I love uh, you know. So it's really cool. But it's almost like this this body, like this embodied, like we're supposed to use our bodies to worship. That's how that's that's what it's supposed to happen. And so our body's going to affect that. Um, so it's so yeah. good. I, I think of religion as you know, kind of an. Uh, uh, infrastructure for our personal and corporate uh, and even global uh, body of Christ. I mean, we're part of a local body, which is great and necessary, but we're also part of a universal body that has existed for centuries. And, um, yes. you know, to, to, to be a part of that is great. I mean, when I was um, living in England doing my PhD, the the building that my uh, classwork was in uh, was next to Durham Cathedral, this massive Norman style cathedral, uh, World Heritage Site, kind of one of the seven you know twenty wonders of the world, um, and that's been there for over a millennium. I mean, it's it's um, and you stand in there and you think like God has been doing things in this building in special ways for hundreds of years and. Um, there's something, you know, I love when God does new things, but when God uses, you know, the same building for yeah. hundreds of years is also something that we need to think about. I think, I feel like sometimes the generations today, maybe my generation likes to chuck, chuck what's old and start new. And yeah, the Bible yeah. does encourage renovation and newness, <clears throat> but not at the expense of what has been there before. We can learn so much from the traditions uh, that have come before us and, and the, the people that have come before us and what's been passed down. Yes. 
Yeah, we can be so judgmental of the past and so judgmental of, of I mean, particularly of the past and of people in the past and how terrible they were and all their views and all this stuff. And it's like hard to hold the tension of progress, even how we define progress, because some people wouldn't define progress the way that, you know, that it's typically defined um, in our culture. Um, but the tension between that and this, like, um, you know, holding on to what is good already. Um, you know, one thing that I had, uh, you know, I, I love the idea of the countercultural, especially like in Christian culture. What do you think is the, word that you found in your research that was the most political or could have the most maybe effect on our political selves as we interact with uh, the world around us? That's a good question. Um, Looking through. (laughs) Um, Oh, you're fine. I mean, one that comes to mind, mind, that's okay. Yeah. One that comes to mind is the word peace. Um, Hmm. You know, Peace, peace can mean many different things. It can mean the cessation of hostilities, which is kind of the classic definition. A Jewish, a more Jewish notion of peace, and I give these subtitles to the chapters. So a Jewish notion is more positive or formative. And so I give the subtitle wholeness, goodness, and harmony in Christ Jesus. Mm. Wholeness, goodness, and harmony in Christ Jesus. Because peace um, is not just the absence of something in a Jew in a Hebraic mindset, but it's, but it's the, the world flourishing as it was intended to in, in harmony and community. Hmm. So I actually quote a theologian, a pastoral theologian named Jose Humphreys at the beginning. He says, imagine a word of Shalom, God's wholeness, God's intention, where some say nothing is missing and nothing is broken. And I focused this whole chapter on uh, the book of Hebrews. I actually start, I mentioned Hamilton, the musical, uh, I just want to read this to you and you can tell me, yeah, please. you could tell me what you, what you think about it, but uh, I'll just read this part, this opener in the summer of 2016, Hamilton, the musical creator and star Lin-Manuel Miranda tweeted the following. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree. And no one will make them afraid for the Lord almighty has spoken Micah four, four. That's Lin-Manuel Miranda quoting Micah four, <laughs> four. This is 2016 That's on funny. Twitter okay. without extra comment. A minute later, he followed this up with another tweet. I'm not particularly religious, but the notion of a world where everyone feels safe is calling me right now. This is 2016. Think about what the world was going through in 2016. Yeah. Yeah. On two earlier occasions, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda tweeted the same Bible verse without comment. If you're one of the few mortals who hasn't watched Hamilton, it might help to know that this verse is recited verbatim. In one of the show's songs, One Last Time, voiced by George Washington. Uh, uh, and then I write here, what was in Micah 4.4 that was attractive to Lin-Manuel? It was the biblical vision of peace, of a redeemed world where every single person has equal access to basic human rights. Their needs are met, and they're free to sit under their own proverbial vine and fig tree. Sometimes we mistakenly assume that peace is the absence of war, hostility, tension, but there's a broader concept in the Bible that is ultimately what God's sin frustrated creation is longing for wholeness and harmony. What I go on call formative peace. And actually we know that, that this verse from Micah was actually one of George Washington, the historical George Washington's favorite verses. And he would put it Hmm. into many of his private letters as almost kind of a motto. That's amazing. So it's like, we have 
piece, which in our, like, it's almost like, so if I'm understanding correctly, you have in our church culture, especially, um, we, we will see pieces. We just don't want to have conflict. We just don't want to, you know, as long as we're not in a fight with anybody, but it's, but that's just only one dimension of it. That's right. Right. And this, this other dimension is this wholeness. And it's like, we, it's almost like we view like many times Christians, cause we are political. We have to be political. We can't escape that. It's like, um, we view the, uh, we can, we like, we just only want to not have conflict as opposed to maybe doing our part to bring peace. That's right. To the world around us and bring yeah. peace even politically between ourselves and our enemies or people who are on the other side. Um, we, there's a lot of avoiding conflict as opposed to maybe even leaning in and doing it correctly to bring peace. Yeah. The image of everyone under their own vine and fig tree. I feel like we live often in a world today where I am obsessed with making sure I have my own vine and fig tree. Yes. But what the vision of Micah is and the vision of the Bible is making sure everybody has their own vine and fig tree. And that includes hmm. me, but I should be as concerned to make sure that Josh has his own vine and fig tree. And hmm. my neighbor has their own vine and fig tree. And red state people have their own vine and, vine, and, vine and fig tree. And blue state people do. And Mexicans do. And Canadians, you know what I mean? Um, you know, yes. that, that's, that's a whole different way. Of looking at, you know, when we when we talk about politics, when I'm talking about politics, my students, I try to take them back to, you know, I'm a Greek teacher, so I take them back to the polis, right, the city. Yeah, the word politics comes from the Greek word for city, and the ideal of a Greek city is not necessarily quality because Greeks weren't necessarily <laughs> Democrats in the modern sense. As long as you're a male and a, and but, a landowner but, or whatever. But that everybody is responsible for the common good. That, that, that's, the, right. that's the essential Greek concept of the city is that everybody uh, is, is a contributing member of the common good. Everybody seeks the peace of the city, the hmm. welfare, peace meaning welfare. And so what we take out of that as modern political human beings you know is when i hate i hate it when people say take politics out of church take politics out of the pulpit what we really mean is take partisan politics out of the pulpit or or that's that's what we should be doing take partisan politics you know there was a recent dust up with al moeller if you saw that where he was basically saying if you don't vote red then you're being an unfaithful christian and yeah. uh, many, many people, including my friend Mike Bird, called that out as um, as heretical because it's basically equating a political party with Christianity, which is obviously historically dangerous. We've seen that with apartheid. We've seen that yes. with, all over the place, the, the Reich Church. Um, but we should all be political insofar as we are concerned with anything and everything that could contribute to the common good to 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 the common welfare 
And when, in fact, when we bury our heads and we say, I don't care what happens in politics. I don't care what happens with healthcare. I don't care what happens with climate change, uh, with environmental policy. I don't care what happens with immigration. Um, we're not acting according to conscience and according to common good. We're acting basically selfishly. We're just saying, I'm just waiting for the world to end. I'm worried about me and my vine and fig tree. And Micah, mm-hmm. the New Testament, Jesus, they all tell us, you know, if you're going to be a part of this beautiful family called Christianity, you are signing up to care for everybody in the world insofar as you're able to contribute to the common good. That is so good. And what an important, important point for, for um, Christians, like especially people that are supposed to be representing Christ. Mm. Like we of all people should be seeking the peace of those around us and seeking reconciliation with the other side. And yet what we've done is we've created this, we've created this um, almost this militaristic view of Christianity where it's like, we got to, you know, they are the enemies of God. Like we had to physically, do something to stop them or, or do something or vote against them or whatever it is. And again, what do you think, what do you think um, someone like Al Mohler's uh, motivations are? And I I know that you can't speak to like what is actually, but like what might like, I guess when I hear that, I'm like, ah, that doesn't sound right. But a part of me could understand if they look through like the platform of the democratic party versus the platform of the Republican party. And they see, Oh wait, it seems like these things are, you know, whatever, you know, Christian and these things or, or, or more in line, not Christian, more in line with scriptural ethical teaching versus, versus maybe the Republican party. Can we even make that comparison? Is it even a fair one? Or like, you know, I guess what I'm saying is at what point, like, are we like, do Christians become political in the way that they stand against um, a power or something like that? Or do we ever do that? Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, the obvious example to me is, you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who, you know, opposed uh, the Reich, the Reich Church. He opposed, obviously, Hitler. Um, and we applaud him for taking a stand politically. Yes. We applaud him for, um, doing everything in his power. Uh, but, but that, I mean, we're talking genocide, right? That's very Mm -hmm. different than, you know, Hey, this person doesn't support my preferred healthcare policy. You know, that, that, that's, I think that, I think there's some discernment there. Um, right. I, I think Moeller, I think there are different f- views on forms of leadership and how much a leader has an obligation to dictate to people what to do. Um, right. Some forms of leadership are more values-based. Okay, here's what you should value, right? And then I leave it to you, Josh, to decide what to do with those values. Right. Right. That's, that's a light handed approach to leadership, right? I'm going to teach you yes. and equip you to, to use a Christian lens to interpret the world around you. And then I trust you to make that decision 
with the spirit's leading. Um, a different form of leadership says, I know what's right for everybody and I will tell everybody what's right. Mm-hmm. Um, that's dangerous. <laughs> There's just no mm. question that that's dangerous. Um, mm. I'll tell you where my heart's at right now. Um, the word tolerance has fallen on hard times. <laughs> right. People yes, see totally. the word tolerance as compromise and um, weakness and um, passivity. But let me just speak in terms of my experience in the academy. I see the academy, I think largely because of social media and and, and political politics, uh, American politics, I see the academy moving into silos in a very drastic way. One of my students once asked me about one of my views, one of my academic views, is this mainstream? I said, there's no mainstream. <laughs> there's like 25 <laughs> different streams. Choose your stream, Right. Um, yes. th- th- there's no mainstream, you know, think about just even the Republicans are all Republicans of one mind. No, are all Democrats mm-hmm. of one mind? No, there are, you know, different kind of subgroups. I-, I see these silos and they're becoming very stiff and hardened. Yes. And the idea that I, you know, which is why I love your podcast, because you guys are doing your best to find as much common ground as possible across difference. And to actually forge friendships across difference. And yes. what's the opposite of that? The opposite of that, and this is what I see happening with Moeller, is demonizing the other side. Right. And vilifying the other side and saying the other side carries a pitchfork and has a red pointy tail. Yes. Um, I think there is a time to do that, but that's like nuclear. That's last, that's last, mm. last option. Yes. That's last option. That's going nuclear. That is what Bonhoeffer did, right? He went nuclear. Um, yes. Some some say he was actually involved in an assassination attempt. Like that is last option. We are treating yes. that as first option now, right? <laughs> um, you know, send nukes, ask questions, never. Yes. And I think that's dangerous. Like I, I've yes. thought about trying to get together some influencers, people in leadership in the academy, and saying. We actually need to have more diversity of thought in leadership together at the table, not just sitting at the table, but actually becoming friends so that we can say we want to stay in the conversation together. And we're not seeing that happen in the church and we're not seeing that happen in politics because we're getting this release valve on social media and in political rhetoric of being able to call out people for scandals, being able to call out people for mischief, crimes, right? It's important that we call those things out, but then it's easy to say those people over there are evil and doing the work of the devil. Yes. Um, I want to find a better word than tolerance because I know it's it's not a term that people like. But AJ and I have coined, uh, 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 coined or maybe made popular a phrase, slow theology. Hmm. And slow theology means if we're going to be formed in anything, it's only to be lasting and good if it's done slowly and carefully. And maybe we need to start a movement, wow. slow politics, Wow! right? Slow politics, baby. Slow I politics, like which is not lazy because it needs to be intentional. But this idea, yes. I'm not just going to jump on social media and tell everybody my latest thoughts, X, Y, and Z, just to get more likes and followers. 
because that means I'm not going to be able to be in conversation. I'm going to lose my credibility to be in conversation with people that I can, can actually make change. If I want to talk to the other side, I need to be in conversation with them, not slinging arrows yes. and weapons and rockets at, and nukes at them. Um, yes. this, is, this is just the way politics works. I, I don't know how you feel. I feel like it's just gotten worse over the last five, six years. Yeah, and it does feel I, that way. I feel like we need Christianity needs to turn around and do the opposite of its tendency. Yes. And instead of creating silos to say, I'm going to actually sit down and try to be friends with the people that trouble me most, because this is the only way we're going to move together. This is the only way we're going to get over this desire that we just want to annihilate the other side. <laughs> it's honestly, Josh, there's, this is, it's hubris. It's I pride. Agree. It's pride. That's getting yeah. in our way of doing it. Um, and, and I need to, myself to be more part of the solution, but I try to hold relationships on both sides of yes. the theological spectrum, the political spectrum. Um, you know, even politically, you know, I, I grew up in a red state. I grew up yes. with red politics and I have a lot of appreciation for the people that raised me and their values. Mm -hmm. And as you know, now I yeah. live in a very blue area um and i you yes. know value a lot of the uh um fundamentals of 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 democratic politics um but i'm torn i honestly i'm torn and i don't want to just napalm the other side just because i vote x y and z i, I honestly not 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 to say that i'm like the model of this but my wife and I, we don't vote according to a party. We just don't. Um, and I think that's because yeah. we do see the flaws in both parties. Same thing with theological traditions. We don't yeah. we don't align with one theological tradition. I think we – I don't know if you have a better word for tolerance, but I think there needs to be more slow politics <laughs> when it comes to yes. the church and when it comes to the city. I mean, I would feel like a word that comes to my mind is acceptance, just acceptance yeah. of that other person. Yeah. Um, even even the things that you don't like. Um, you know, this is the last question. Um, what is one thing you would want the, our listeners to um, know about your book um, yeah. before we, you know, uh, to know about it? And then like, uh, what projects do you have in, sure. in the queue? Yeah. What would I want? What I want your listeners to know. Um, I would want them to know it's written for, it's not written for eggheads. It's written for people who want, who want to, to maybe refresh their Bible reading and say, you know, I read the Bible a lot. I read it for devotions. I hear it at church and it's getting kind of stale. It's getting a little bit old. It's getting a little bit in, in repetitious and, and um, sure feels like kind of a chore. And I want to say, I'm hoping some of the analogies I use, some of the pop culture stuff I use, some of the translation insight I use will help kind of reinvigorate people's faith. If they start, you know, I talk about Bono's song about grace when I talk about grace yeah. in one of the chapters and he has a beautiful song about that. I use stuff from star Wars to talk about peace, uh, peace and yes. war. Um, you know, I, I, I try to bring in stuff that we engage with in real life. So I'm hoping that will help, uh, um, maybe refresh people's faith. In terms of other things going on, I have a book coming out in 2023 called Tell Her Story, which is about 
the women leaders of the earliest Christian churches. Um, I'm teaching a course on this right now at Northern Seminary. And I didn't grow up in an environment where I heard about all these amazing women leaders of churches in, in the early church. Women like Yodi and Syntyche mm. and Nympha, um, Priscilla, and exactly what Priscilla did, Phoebe, uh, the women mentioned in Romans 16. I, I don't know their stories, and I'm shocked that most people yes. don't know their stories and how amazing they were. You know, Junia, Andronicus and Junia, I refer to them as Paul's auntie and uncle because he says they were in the faith <laughs> before me. We know very few people from that generation, the generation before Paul. Think about that. There was a Christian leadership generation yes. before Paul. And That's Junia amazing. Andronicus were a part of that. And he looked up to them as, as I say, his auntie and uncle. Um, their stories need to be told. It's amazing. So that's coming up. And then um, I'm working on a book right now called Strange Religion about how the early Christians were weird, dangerous, and attractive. And I basically say <laughs> we need to nice. be weird, dangerous, and attractive today. That's awesome. Well, it looks like we have a few more podcasts we're going to have to have then. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I just set up in a six month uh, <laughs> schedule. Yes. The, just the revolving door. That'd be great. Well, thank you so much, Nijay. It's a pleasure to have you on here. Um, so thank you guys. You want to get the book 15 new Testament words of life. Yep. It's on sale everywhere you can get books so make sure to grab that grab a copy and you want to and uh thanks so much guys thanks, we'll see you next time